you have to love where you work. And I do. The nurses and MPs and nurse assistants in our office are just fantastic. They're dedicated. They're evidence-based. And above all, they know how to laugh and have a good time when it's appropriate. Listen, I have been asked by two of our nurse practitioners, Lindsay and Jenna, to get this podcast out. And I've had it on the list, but I've forgotten to do it. So, Lindsay and Jenna, listen, I didn't ignore you. I'm going to do this podcast now because it really is a good topic and it's stuff that we can discuss and I think would benefit a lot of different listeners. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about choosing the, quote, right, end quote, birth control pill. Is there such a thing? Well, before we get into the spoiler at the end, so you got to hang out towards the end because that's where we'll give you a personal perspective there. We're going to cover not just the history of the pill, but the different types of progestins involved. And are they really anti-androgenic or is that just a marketing thing? So if you're interested and that sparked your attention, which I hope it has, let's get to the program now. In addition to the overwhelming effect of contraception and reproductive rights that the pill conferred to women, there are numerous non-contraceptive benefits of the pill. OCPs provide a non-invasive option for managing the vast spectrum of dysmenorrhea, heavy menstrual bleeding, perimenopausal, or even premenstrual symptoms. Rates of hysterectomy done for reasons of uncontrollable bleeding have substantially dropped and deaths have been averted and lives have been made more productive as a consequence of these non-contraceptive known hormone benefits. Hormonal contraceptives are actually protective in case control and large retrospective studies against ovarian and uterine cancers, although we're not quite sure of the pathophysiology with the protection of ovarian cancer. The overall advantage remains substantial and is considered to far outweigh any potential risk for most women. Speaking of risks, this is a good place to stop and do a shout out for the MEC, the Medical Eligibility Chart, that's originally done from the World Health Organization and then adopted by the CDC. Of course, you can get that free online. I actually have a couple of snapshots on my phone library about that table. I know that's super geeky, but it's super helpful as well. So the MEC groups medical conditions across or combined with a variety of contraceptive agents and lists each medical condition on a one through four scale, with one being very low risk and four being a almost true contraindication. Now, even this table that's been around for many years has some critics because some of the data that went into the number designation for that chart, well, is just kind of outdated. So again, goes to show that nothing's perfect, but the MEC chart is a great way to keep you out of trouble and you can reference that when patients present with a variety of medical conditions and seeking contraception. We're going to get into the estrogen type and dose and the four different generations of progestin in just a minute. But listen to this history because if you realize how far we've come, not only in the formulation of this medication, but just in its development and overall use and approval is pretty fascinating and I don't want to take that for granted. Remember, I actually have another podcast, I think that was done about six months ago, maybe a year ago, that talks about why placebo pills are in each birth control pill pack. Remember that the original design of these pills was to not have any placebo or pill-free weeks or days because the idea was that that would risk escape ovulation. So the original design was to take the pill continuously as a pseudo-pregnancy. 
However, one of the investigators, who is John Rock, a gynecologist and a devout Catholic, was having conflict, moral dilemmas about taking away women's cycles. had nothing to do with a biological principle, but it had to do with his spiritual conflict that women were not menstruating as they were designed to do. So John Rock advocated for putting these placebos back in. And again, you can listen to that podcast on a separate day. But remember, there is no medical or biological reason to have a pill-free interval in your contraceptive month that only risks escape ovulation. So most gynecologists and expert opinion still is that the use of the birth control pill in a continuous versus cyclic manner is a little better because it helps prevent ebbs and flows in hormone levels and helps prevent escape ovulation for women that are very sensitive to the pill suppression. In 1951, Carl Desari, who is a chemist in Mexico City, actually created the first pill by synthesizing hormones from Mexican yams. Yep, thanks Mexican yams. On a chemical level, the pill had actually been invented, but Desari didn't have the equipment to test, prove, or distribute it. But the next year, in 1952, the race was officially on. Pincus, who was a chemist and researcher, joined up with John Rock, who was a gynecologist and also a chemist, and began testing chemicals in a way to manipulate reproduction. This was also done in conjunction with the pharmaceutical company Searle. In 1953, Catherine McCormick, who was a biologist and a women's rights activist, actually gave a great amount of resources, of funds, as a philanthropist to these two researchers to continue their endeavors. In 1954, Rock and Pincus conduct the first human trials on just 50 women, and their combination of medication actually worked. In 1956, large-scale clinical trials were conducted in Puerto Rico, where there was no anti-birth control laws on the book. Now, the pill was deemed 100% effective, which, again, is a little skeptical, but nonetheless, a 100% effective, but serious adverse events were ignored. Now, remember, that was 1956, and the adverse events likely came from the dose of estrogen, which included 100 to 150 micrograms of synthetic estrogen. Remember, now we're down to ultra-low-dose pills, which is 10 micrograms. So just to give you an idea of how far we've come. So things like cardiovascular issues, strokes, and blood clots were real, but they were at vastly higher and the truth is, dangerous levels of mestranol. In 1957, the FDA approved the pill, but it was only for severe menstrual disorders. In 1960, the pill was approved for contraceptive use, but it remained a complete controversial issue and almost at taboo. Remember, its first indication was only, quote, for married women. End quote. That's in the original publication. Isn't that wild? So if you were unmarried, you could not get the birth control pill. In 1965, just five years after the FDA approval, it became the most popular form of birth control in the U.S., outpacing condoms and diaphragms. But again, the controversy persisted with the Pope in 1986 issuing and declaring his opposition to the pill in a written statement called Humanae Vitali. So again, the controversy persisted until the 70s with the sexual revolution, and now we're at current day when the pill is one of the most common medications used in reproductive age women. 
All right, none of that had anything to do with what Jenna and Lindsay was trying to get me to do. But I think that that history is just so fascinating. All birth control pills now in the market worldwide, of course, are low-dose pills, starting at 35 micrograms and then heading down. Low-dose pills are traditionally called anything from 20 micrograms up to 35 micrograms of ethanyl estradiol, which is the most common estrogen component in the pill. Ultra-low-dose pills are those that have under 20 micrograms, and of course, low-loestrin is the one that has 10 micrograms and is the only one that has 10 micrograms at this time. This is not a plug for low-loestrin, just giving you the facts. Also remember that there's different schemes of how the pill is taken, either as continuous use for extended amount of time, like seasonal or seasonique, or as a traditional 21-7 pack with 21 active pills and then seven placebo pills. And remember, there's no biological or medical reason why those placebos are there. Those are simply for reassurance that women are not pregnant and they can have their cycle, but they can also have escape ovulation. That's where the idea of a shorter pill-free or pill holiday interval came into play, with some pill packs having a 24-4 design, 24 active, 4 placebos. Loloestrin is unique because in that 24-4 design, Two of those four tablets are estrogen only at very low dose, leaving only two true placebo pills. Okay, we've done history. We've done pack design. Now let's take a look at the phasic formulations. Traditionally, birth control pills were done in a triphasic form, meaning that every week there was a step-up increase in the total amount of hormones to try to, quote, mimic a regular cycle, end quote. However, the issue is that regular cycle is what gives women problems to begin with. So we don't really want to mimic a natural cycle. We want to do better than that and normalize hormone levels and trends. So the area under the curve with monophasic pills tends to be more constant at a steady state. So while triphasic pills are still out there, they tend to be more old school with most newer gynecologists favoring and level C does have data to show that a monophasic preparation, in other words, keeping the two doses of hormones, estrogen and progestin constant throughout the cycle, tends to cause much less hormonal flares and keeps a steady state of area under the curve of hormone exposure. So monophasic is my personal preference. And again, level C expert opinion. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, let's get into the progestin components of the pill. Remember, in the U.S., most estrogens are ethanyl estradiol. It's a very potent analog of natural estradiol. But in birth control, in all hormonal contraceptives, it's the progestins that are the most important agent for contraception. They suppress ovulation and they thicken the cervical mucus and help atrophy the endometrial lining. That's why there's progestin-only contraceptive methods, but no estrogen-only methods. Estrogen, it is true, does augment the gonadotropic effect of progestins. In other words, it gives a little bit of added benefit and added suppression over what progesterone does alone, but that's very minor. 
the true benefit of adding estrogen to birth control is in cycle regularity because progestin-only methods, as you all well know, have the number one side effect of bleeding. So estrogen addition can help normalize those bleeding patterns. The older progestins were derived mainly for their anti-gonadotropic effect. Over the more recent decades, newer progestins have been developed with the goal of finding a potent progestational and anti-estrogenic effect in the endometrium, coupled with a strong anti-gonadotropic effect, but with minimal androgenic and increased mineralocorticoid activity. Now, this is where we get the different generations of progestins. The first generation, again, was derived from 19-nortestosterone. That's norethindrone and norethindrone acetate, classically, first generation. And these were the most, quote, androgenic, at least in vitro. Now, we're going to talk about clinically here in just a minute. But remember, when we're talking about androgen sensitivity and androgen potency, those are usually done on bench testing and their affinity to androgen receptors. Traditionally, these first-generation nortestosterone derivatives are called estrains, but they also have medroxyprogesterone acetate in this first-generation category. So remember, norethindrone and norethindrone acetate and medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is Depo-Provera, are both first-generation types of progestin. Second-generation progesterone agents are called gonanes. These gonanes are derived from testosterone's first-generation derivatives. These are your levonorgestrel ones or norgestrel. Y'all get that? So second-generation, again, which is leaving the androgenicity behind, is levonorgestrel or norgestrel. Third generation are derived from the gonane derivatives. So these all come from forms of levonorgestrel. These are your desogestrol or your norgestimate derivatives, much less androgenic. Here's also where Nexplanon comes in because etornorgestrol is a third generation progestin. And of course, lastly, we get our very atypical, completely synthetic progesterone agents, which are non-progesterone at all. And that's like drospirinone or nestorone. These are fourth generation and are much well known because they tend to have the most anti-androgenic activity, once again, at least in vitro or on the bench models. So we go from the first generation, your most androgenic, and then the fourth generation, which is the least androgenic. Now, does this matter clinically? Well, don't beat me to the punch. So we're going to talk about that in just a bit. And of course, whenever we talk about the fourth generation progestins, everybody gets up in arms about the thrombotic risk. Now, wait a minute. I don't want to simplify that or make that seem completely fraudulent. There is something there. But before I get into that data, let me just answer this very quickly. The risk of a person getting a DVT is much higher in pregnancy in the postpartum period than it is with these agents in the appropriately selected patient. So if your patient has a BMI of 45, is a poorly controlled diabetic with varicose veins, I probably wouldn't give them a fourth generation progestin. But overall in the general population, while the risk may be statistically higher, statistically higher for VTE with estrogen combined with a fourth generation progestin, the absolute number is still very low. In a meta-analysis of eight observational studies, the use of progestin-only contraception was not associated with an increased risk of venous thromboembolism compared with non-users of hormonal contraception. 
when administered with ethnyl estradiol, the newer generation progestins, specifically third and fourth generation, do have an increased risk of venous thromboembolism compared to their older counterparts. But remember, this is just relative risk and is very low in an absolute number. According to this increased venous thromboembolic risk, things like the newer progestins drospirinone with ethanyl estradiol gives an FDA-quoted relative risk increase of anywhere from 1.7 to 2.1. Again, just relative risk, but overall absolute number is still very, very low. Okay, I'm going to step away, get a cup of coffee because my coffee level is super low. When we come back, we're going to get into the clinical benefits of anti-androgen contraception. Do these newer progestins actually mean something clinically in vivo to the patient or is it all marketing? Well, the truth is it's a little bit of both. So we'll explain next. Man, this thing is getting long because I talk too much. Let's get right to the anti-androgenic effects of oral contraception. Estrogens and progesterone combined in birth control pills act in a synergistic manner at the gonadal axis. They decrease the secretion of hypophysial luteinizing hormone and FSH by negative feedback, so they inhibit ovulation. Gonadotropin inhibition also has the effect of reducing the androgen production of ovarian theca cells and adrenal gland. An additional anti-androgenic effect of estrogen comes from their stimulation of liver production of SHBG, which is sex hormone binding globulin. This globulin is a big vacuum, it's a big sucker that takes up free circulating androgens and so it reduces free available testosterone to peripheral tissues. So here's the catch. If you're using combined estrogen and progesterone birth control, the rise in sex hormone binding globulin, which isn't immediate, I mean it, it, it does lag a little bit, will ultimately help suck up excess androgens. High doses of estrogens may decrease sebum production as well, but apparently greater doses than that seen in birth control pills are required for such an effect, so it's typically not done. We're basically talking about the effect of estrogen rising sex hormone binding globulin and taking away free testosterone because total levers of androgens will eventually, and that's the key word, eventually drop. Where the anti-androgenic issue comes in is more in sebum production, which is acne, which can take a little bit longer, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, and things like depression and libido. More of that in just a minute. The role of progestins in androgen metabolism is very complex. Synthetic progestins that were first generation, remember those were derived from 19-north testosterone or progesterone like medroxyprogesterone acetate, not only bind to progesterone receptors, but they also have the ability to bind to other steroid receptors, including these androgens. Most birth control pills contain testosterone-derived progestins with the exception of third and fourth generation categories of progesterones. These progestin compounds were proposed to initially not give the initial spike in acne that the original first-generation birth control pills gave. Okay, because we're coming to the end, here's a clinical pearl. All that to say, when studied separately from estrogen by themselves, the different progestin generations absolutely have different variable effects on the androgen receptor. 
Now, although some progestins have more androgenic effects than others, when combined with estrogen, they synergistically depress the gonadotropin secretion and decrease androgen production. The counteraction of estrogens and progesterone in sex hormone binding globulin results in the enhancement of this binding protein with a net reduction in free available androgen. Let's see that again. When you take it all into a mix, when you add the different generations progesterone that have various degrees of antiandrogenic activity by themselves, but you mix that with estrogen in the net, it all basically comes awash because there is an overall reduction in free available androgen regardless of the type of progestin involved. So again, all oral birth control pills that are combination are in fact anti-androgenic. Do y'all get that? As a clinical pearl, there is true, very potent anti-androgenic effects of birth control progesterones by themselves. But estrogen, well, the truth is, biologically in vivo kind of levels out the field. Now here is the catch. Not all of them are anti-androgenic in vivo at the same rate. Remember we said that estrogen stimulates sex hormone binding globulin. That takes a while to rise and suck up or remove the excess androgens in circulation. This is where the anti-androgenic progestins, the third and fourth generation classes, come into play. In women, for example, that are very sensitive to the progestin effect that can have some potential mood instability or depression, those are patients where I don't risk giving a first-generation testosterone derivative because even in that short term, before sex hormone binding globulin rises, they may have an adverse effect on their mood and then stop birth control. So in women who have a previous history of depression or birth control-related mood disorder, even though that is very controversial in and of itself, but those are the patients I specifically give an anti-androgenic progestin so that they don't get that spike in progestin activity until sex hormone binding globulin takes over. Similarly, in women who have acne, using a first-generation testosterone pill may initially augment or make that acne worse until sex hormone binding globulin kicks in from the liver as an estrogen effect. So in those women, I definitely choose a third or fourth generation progestin as long as there's no other medical contraindication. Lindsay Malley, Jenna Grace. Thank you all for giving this idea for this podcast. You know, I hadn't put it off. It's just that there's so much data in there. I figured out how the heck am I going to do that in about 15 to 20 minutes. But we did. So I think you ladies are fantastic. I really enjoy working with you both. Thanks for just making it a pleasant work environment. And again, here's the last take-home message. Always use the lowest dose possible. Remember, that's the same for any therapeutic. So I like to start with an ultra-low dose medication, like a 10 microgram. But I tell the patients up front that the lower dose in estrogen basically functions as a progestin-only pill. So they're going to expect a little bit more spotting or bleeding than something that has, for example, a 30 or 35 microgram pill. It's all in setting patient expectations and giving them that information up front. And in those women that have mood sensitivity issues or are worried about acne, those are the ones that I choose a third or fourth generation progestin pill to avoid the initial spike in androgen effect until sex hormone binding globulin evens out the field. 
All right, that brings us to a wrap. We'll see you guys at work. And for the rest of our listener audience, we'll see you all on our next podcast on Clinical Pearls.